The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So we've been going through 2 Corinthians, and we're, we're calling the whole thing of good courage, and I really think that's a driving theme for this whole letter. Paul is writing out of affliction, out of trouble, out of sorrow, out of challenge, and he's always needing courage to face the issue, and then he's giving courage so that we can face ours, and we've seen it week after week after week, and this morning we are finding the courage to speak, the courage to speak. So if you're, if you're a Christian, um, you probably have an awareness that God wants you to share your faith with other people, and if you don't have that awareness, let me just land that on you right now. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to share your faith with other people. How many of you would like to be like, well, just let the apostles do it? I would. You guys do it. Here's the problem. They're all dead. So if anybody's going to meet Jesus, somebody's going to have to tell them. And, uh, you know, it's all over the Bible, of course. It's called the Great Commission. Jesus tells his disciples, those who follow him, to go. Go. What do they have to leave? This, they have to leave what we have right here. Because for a lot of us, this is comfortable. It's people we know and love, and we've known them and loved them a long time, and we're saying things that we're familiar with and we're used to, and it's great. Please come back next week. But you're, after this, you're supposed to go. Go away. Go to new people. Go to different people, different places, and tell them about Jesus so that they can become followers of Jesus. We're supposed to share our faith, right? Um, I think Christians know that. And I think Christians also tend to feel, is there anything scarier than that in the entire world? Um, even the most bold of us sometimes waver in our courage when it comes to sharing the faith. So I could think of four great reasons not to share your faith. You want to hear them? Good. <laughs> Number one, we're, we're afraid of the awkward. How many of you hate awkward situations? You just do not, you know that all of a sudden it's in the room and all of a sudden it's uncomfortable, the hairs are raised in the back of the neck, people are like, um, you, you're uncomfortable with the awkward, and then to make it worse, what if you were the source of the awkwardness? I mean, you'd, you'd rather cut off a toe than, other most of us are like, no, I like the awkward, let's bring it. Okay, but some of us, were afraid of the awkward, so sometimes bringing Jesus up can be awkward, can it? Especially if, uh, you know, you're taken to a relationship to a place that's never gone before. You were at this amount of depth, you know, small talk, friendly, we're friends. And then all of a sudden you bring up the big questions of life, Jesus, religion, and you're kind of on your toes like, is this, this going to work? So it's scary. Fear of the awkward. Another thing we're afraid of, I think, is we're afraid of being exposed. We're afraid of being exposed. If you start talking about Jesus with other people, they might have a question or an issue or a problem, they bring that to you and you're like a, a deer in the headlights of like, I don't know the answer. I don't know how to respond. I don't know where to go from here. I don't know what to say. And that's a scary thing too, to be exposed. Or, or if they know you really well, they might bring up some part of your life and be like, you're gonna tell me about righteous living and the way to salvation? What about what you did, you know, six months ago? I was there. And you're like, never mind. We're afraid of being exposed. Me too. Third one. So if we're afraid of the awkward, afraid of being exposed, we're, ex we're afraid of rejection. You may have noticed if you've read the Bible, not all of it is considered politically correct in today's world. In fact, maybe most of it isn't. Especially the view of God. He calls himself king and holy and he wants every part of you and he expects you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and obey him in everything. He's kind of like a my way or the highway kind of God, isn't he? Um, you start to share that with people and sometimes there's controversy, there's even anger. Um, it, can, it can change relationships sometimes. You didn't want it to, maybe you tried your best to be loving, but the, the controversy that comes, that's a scary thing. We're afraid of rejection. Here's the fourth one. It's probably the most embarrassing I think we're afraid of changing our schedules. I was going to the gym 
The other day, I had a chance to share my faith with somebody, but I couldn't, because I had somewhere else to be. I had somewhere else to be. I have work to do, right? We got, th- we got important things to do. That's why we can't share our faith. Um, it's gonna be inconvenient somehow to make new relationships, to spend time in conversations with those relationships, that's never going to come at like, well, I've got 15 minutes between three and four. Um, that's never going to come in just the way you want it. So you're going to have to, you have to sacrifice something of, of your schedule on the altar sometimes to share your faith, and we're afraid of that. So you could probably think of more things to be afraid of, but those are my top four. It's awkward, we get exposed, we get rejection sometimes, and it's inconvenient. Sounds like we need courage, right? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Call Jesus up and be like, we appreciate the offer on sharing your gospel, but we've decided we're too busy and it's too hard. Please, please find another church. Thanks. Is that what we're going to say to him? And what's he going to tell us? You need some courage. You need some courage. You need a new view. You need a new heart on this. And that's part of the definition of courage anyway, isn't it? The ability to do something that frightens one. That's what courage is. I'm scared. And I'm going to go. So we're looking here and we're hearing from the Apostle Paul here in 2 Corinthians. And what's so great about this is I don't think you'll find anyone more courageous in sharing your faith than the Apostle Paul. Nobody. Nothing stops. And let me, let me show you, uh, share with you a little story from Acts 14. You read this on your own time if you want. Paul goes to the city of Lystra, and he's sharing the gospel. He's telling people about Jesus and what he's done, and um, a church gets formed. But he's got opponents as well. Remember, this is one of our fears, being rejected. He's got opponents as well, and they're so nefarious and wicked that they actually stir up the crowd to stone Paul, as in like, take, surround the man, take rocks, and hurl them upon him. Um, to where they, they, and then they drag him out of the city and leave him for dead. I can't, how horrid would that be? To just be in a circle of people that don't like you is enough to make most of us, you know, suck our thumbs and get in the fetal position. And then to have them throwing rocks um, at us. And I guess probably he was concussed. He got hit in the head. It seemed like he was dead. And then they just drag him and they leave him there. That happens to him in Acts 14. Do you know what he does the next day? He heads to another city. You see, this is where I'm calling in my retirement, right? Don't you get a trophy for this? If, you spread the, if you're sharing the gospel and you get stoned and left for dead, don't you get a trophy or a tag or something? You get the special seat in church. You're amazing at that point. But then you can also kind of call in your Christian retirement, right? You can be like, look, I played my part. I did my part. I've, I've got wounds. All, I've, it's time for other people to go. You know, I, I need to take care of me. I need me time. What's he doing next city? He's preaching the gospel again. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So full of courage. And what's great is he's going to let us in in this passage on the secret to his courage. He's going to let us in on the secret. He's going to show us what keeps him going. Show us what burns in his heart so brightly that he is willing to face all of these fears. He fears them too. He doesn't want to be rejected. I'm going to go ahead and assume he doesn't like being stoned. Okay? He, he doesn't want to be the awkward guy every time. And couldn't he be doing things that are a little more fun than that occasionally? But he's got courage that pushes him through it. It burns in his guts. He pushes through it. What is it? That's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to see the source of his courage, and we're going to then see, that's the first part, and then we're going to then see how that helps give us courage in our work. And, and just, this is the way I want to frame it for you. We're going to see that the, the source of Paul's courage is the wonder of what God is doing. It's the wonder of what God is doing. And that's when we're going to see that that gives us the source of courage for what he's called us to do. So in other words, 
to get the courage that you need for what you're supposed to do, you need to be amazed at the wonder of what God is already doing. And that will give you that courage. So you ready? Let's do that together. Let's look for the wonder of what God is doing in verses three to six. The wonder of what God is doing in verses three to six. And there's three sub points to this for me. The problem, the fix, and the purpose. So this is big point, the wonder of what God is doing, sub points, the problem he's addressing, the fix he's giving, the purpose of what he's doing. So let's look. Verses three, we'll start with three to four. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. I want to back up just a little bit. Remember some of what we did last week. Two images that may, you might be a little rusty on. Glory and veil. You remember that from last week? Glory and veil. So biblical words, you're kind of like, okay, here, I don't, what does this mean? Glory means what's most lovely, most beautiful, most awesome, most amazing. It's glorious. It's fantastic what you love, okay? Two ways to see that. Number one, your glory. That would be how you rank these things, how you like it. What's best to you, okay? Your glory. Another way to look at that would be true glory. I guess what should be best to you. And wouldn't you agree this is a big human problem? We love, we love small things too much and we love big things too little. It happens all the time. Small things too much, big things too little. Addiction, somebody got into this thing and then after a thousand steps, it, it owns them. And they love this thing they shouldn't love at all, or maybe they should just love it a little. And they love it like it's everything. And because this, they love this thing so much, what do they do with things they should be loving? They demote them. They demean them. It's very painful, isn't it? Their loves are out of order. So their, their heart's glory isn't truly glorious, right? So, so to really thrive... To really be who you're supposed to be, it would be to have your loves in order. It would be to love the thing that's most glorious the most, right? And everything would fit. Glory, what you love, what's most beautiful. Your glory versus true glory. Then the idea of the veil, well, that fits into this because a veil, something goes over your face and it affects how you see. So if you can't see the beauty of what's truly glorious, it's like you're blind. I, I just, I know it's there, but I, I don't get it. I don't see it. Um, I, I kind of go back to these illustrations because I, I think they help make it clear. If you've ever done an intervention with, some, with a friend who um, has, has really a, an addiction, perhaps, alcoholism or something like that, and, and you go to them and you say, by the way, would you go to them? Or would you just let them, would you just let them hit the wall? Some of us might just let them hit the wall. It's too bad. Um, would, you, would you go to them? Somebody who can't see what's truly beautiful, would you go? Because they don't always like it when you tell them. Um, if you go to them, you say, I think you love this thing, alcohol in this case, this illustration, I think you love it too much. You always have to have it. And it's ruining things you should love more, like relationships, right? Certain people in your life. Maybe it's killing your marriage or your family or whatever else. Would you, would you go to them and intervene and then they, they look at you and say, no, I'm fine. Everything's fine. What do you want to call that? In psychology, I think you call it denial, right? It's not just a river in Egypt. Um, what? I'm fine. I can't see it. I can't see it. I don't see that I love this too much and I don't love the other things. But maybe it's haunting them somewhere. But they don't see. You're like, I tried to talk. They just, they didn't see. That's what the Bible means by this veil. They, it didn't get in. They don't see. And so the veil has to be somehow removed so that all of a sudden we go, oh, now I, see, now I see what I should have been seeing. Now I see what's really important in life, what's most beautiful. Do you see that? That's, that's a huge for understanding this passage, the glory and the veil. So then, now the problem, Paul is saying that the heart of our sin, you've heard of that word, that Bible word, church word, the heart of our sin is that we don't see what's most beautiful the way we should, probably because we don't want to. But that's even into it, how you, what you want is how you see, 
We don't see what we should. So look at verse 3. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. What's the gospel? It's his news about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Son of God, Davidic king, Messiah, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for sins, rose from the dead in victory, all according to the scriptures. He's king, he reigns, one day he'll return to renew everything. It's the gospel, believe the gospel. Paul says in verse three, even if our gospel is veiled, what does that mean? It doesn't mean they didn't hear the sounds. It doesn't mean that they couldn't even tell you the ideas he was giving. They could say, yeah, Paul said this. In fact, we know very well they could say what Paul was saying because they hated it so much. It's veiled. In what way is it veiled to them? They can't see it. Look at verse four. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light. This is some... Amazing words. Uh, Some questions probably. Who is the God of this age and why is he called that? Or the God of this world, sorry. Who is is this guy and why is he called that? Um, Any guesses? Yeah, you'd have to go with uh, Satan, the devil, the accuser. What do we know about him? Real, personal, spiritual being, right? A real, a personal, a spiritual being Very good at what he does. Um, He enjoys evil and wants to infect everything else with evil. Um, And what does he especially like to do? He wants to blind your mind. Why is he called the God of this age? Um, Imagine, or the God of this world, I did it again. Why is he called the God of this world? Imagine a World War II setting. And all of a sudden, who is it that's taken over France? Germany, right? And they set up an administration over France, that territory. And now who's, who's reigning over France? The Germans. But do they represent the rightful administration, the true rulers of France? No, they're, they're alien invaders. They don't belong here. But right now they have power. Okay. Let me back you up if you remember that first, first account we have of Satan interacting with anyone. Do you remember where that was? Garden of Eden, right? Uh, the high point of God's creation, Adam and Eve, male and female, made in his image. So the idea there is that God is the emperor. He's the king. He rules everything. He made everything. But we, humanity, are to rule in his name, right? Have dominion over the earth. So to rule in his name, to rule for his glory, and it's supposed to be good and beautiful, it's supposed to cultivate everything, um, Adam and Eve were king and queen of their garden, okay? But, the, but Satan comes in, and what's he want to do? Do you remember what he wants to do? He's not like sacrificing cats in the woods or drawing pentagrams on trees. He just wants to talk. Do you remember what he says? It's questions like, first you have to get the face right. Can you do that with me? It's a face that says, is God really any good? So his first question is, does God really say, geez. And the, the total implication is, God is not generous, he's not beautiful, he's not glorious, he's holding back on you. He's cheating you. He's cheating you. He doesn't come out right and say it, he just, he, he, tantalizes with it. Did, did God really say that? Oh, I can't believe he would do that. What did, I don't want to say this, but he's kind of a crappy God. That's, that's exactly what he's doing. Did God really say? So in the end, Satan's line is, God's not good, he's not beautiful, he's not generous, and he's not trustworthy. He won't delight you, the devil says, and you can't trust what he says, which means throw him out, go with something else. Set yourself up, set something else up, but this God, he's no good. Do you see how that plays into the veil? If you buy his lie, what are you seeing now about God? He's no good and I can't trust him. First, you know, take your pulse. If that's the way you see God, he's no good and I can't trust him. The blanket might be on your head, according to this text. 
And so that's what Satan, he's got kind of control of this world. He's not the rightful king. One day he'll get booted out by the rightful king. Amen, let's go, I'm ready. Uh, but for now he's, he's in charge and he's, his, whole, his whole line is putting the blanket on heads, over heads, so you can't see the beauty of God and his goodness and how trustworthy he is. And that's why when Paul says, when I present my gospel, sometimes it's veiled. So they can hear my ideas that I'm giving them about Jesus, but they can't see, what was the word they can't see? Verse four, to keep them from seeing the what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What does that mean to you? Say you're talking to, uh, I don't know, you ever, you ever read any like atheist authors? You're talking to, uh, Christopher Hitchens passed away. Could he tell you what Christians believe about the gospel? Could he, if you said, what do Christians believe? Could he say, well, this is the gospel according to the Christian? He totally could. He could totally give you the details. He believed this about Jesus and Jesus did this for you and you just gotta believe it. He could totally give you that. What does he not see? Well, a lot of things. Um, but specifically, does it have any draw to him, any beauty to him, any desirability to him? Does he like, oh, I want that, I need that, I love that, or is he repulsed by it? He's repulsed, he can't, that's what it means, he can't see the light. He's got no love for this. There's no warmth for this. There's no desire for this. Can't see it. That's the problem. It's a big problem. Because it's not just they can't understand the facts. Boy, it'd be kind of easy to fix that one. I can change facts for you, right? Can't you change facts for me? Let me help you. You have, you have one, two, and four. Let me give you one, two, and three. Oh, okay, I got it now. It's totally different when you have to turn on the light. How, how do you turn on the light? Have, have any of you ever experienced this? Maybe uh, you're an adult convert and you remember somebody trying to share the gospel with you for years and for a while you're like, don't care, not interested, leave me alone, not go away. No light. And then one day, what happened? Oh. Or the other way around, you're, you're sharing it with a friend and, and you actually get like close, you're sharing them, the fa- and they're, they're like, okay, so this is what you're saying? And then they're like, I, I don't want it. And you're like, how can you not want it? I don't want it. The light. Here's what God is doing. He's turning on the light. God is turning on the light. Look at verse six. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's turning on the light. Uh, do you remember that phrase, let there be light, let light shine out of darkness? Where have we heard that before? Genesis, there was nothing, right? And God says, let there be light. His word, boom, stars and the sun. And, oh, amazing. Light. What's God doing in hearts? Let there be light, boom. And what do you see? Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner, I need you, I love who you are, I love what you've done. I can see glory there. That's what God's doing. You remember from last week, 2 Corinthians 3, 16. 2 Corinthians 3, 16, Paul wrote, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding what? The glory of the Lord. He set you, the Spirit sets you free to do what you couldn't do before, which is to see and enjoy and delight in the beauty of Jesus. The problem is we can't see the fix is God is turning on the light in Jesus Christ. God's doing it. Who turns on the light? Let's just get this clear. Can you turn on the light in anybody's heart? No. God turns on the light. But that's what God is doing. That's the fix. He does it through the message of the gospel. And here's the point. So the problem, the fix, here's the point. You see it in verse six. You see it in verse four. Uh, let me do it like this. What, uh, what would you say is the best part of Christianity? 
I don't want to get anybody in trouble because there's some right answers that aren't quite right. Um, talk about it last week. We'll do it again. I think it, it helps me, okay? So you could say, how many of you like to be forgiven of your sins? Yes. So good, so important. Wow, do I need that. I need to be forgiven. What's the problem if you say that's the whole point of the gospel? It's just, it, it ends you with like a get out of hell free card. And now what? And now what? I think I heard uh, John Piper use an illustration of, of him being a jerk one night to his wife, said something nasty. Does anybody ever do that? You say something nasty to people you love? Never, okay. Write the book, tell me how not to do it. Um, and, and you say something nasty to the person you love, and then what happens in the, in the, in the atmosphere of the room? You know? That, that phrase, cold shoulder, that really works, right? Good morning. See this? It's a shoulder and it's cold, right? Don't talk to me. How are you? Fine. I'm fine. Something, I feel like it's not fine. <laughs> what do you need from that person you love that you hurt? You need forgiveness. You need forgiveness. You need to say, I'm sorry, I was a jerk. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And they need to say, yeah, I forgive you. I'm letting it go. I'm not going to pay you back for it. I'm not going to be bitter about you for it. I'm not going to get revenge on you for it. I'm letting it go. Sweet. Thanks. You're forgiven. But what was the point of that forgiveness? Now what? Now we're back together again. Now we're face to face again. Now we have relationship again. Now we can look at each other in the eye again and enjoy. That's what forgiveness was for. It restored the relationship. What's the high point of the gospel? What's the point of the gospel? Is it even, is it to get you forgiven? No, forgiven is to get you somewhere else. What about this? Is it to get you to heaven? Is it to get you to heaven? So let me ask you like this. Would it be heaven, grass is green, you got a new glorified body, food tastes good, no bad guys, no more social media. Everything's great except Jesus isn't there. Your mom's there, your grandma is there. You can play games again. Um, you, can, you can play croquet on the yard, you can swim with the dolphins. It's, it's perfect. Except Jesus isn't there. Is it heaven? Right. If your heart's like, wait, what? The high point of the gospel is to get you to the face of Jesus and to be amazed at his beauty and his love and his glory and his power and his magnificence. He's the, he's the gospel. He's the good news. The good news is you get to have him. Why do you need a body that's perfectly glorified and that lasts forever. Because now you got the clothes you need to work in the face of Jesus. Why do you need to be forgiven? Because otherwise, you're going to be incinerated before you make it to the borderline of the face of Jesus. Why do you need to be perfectly righteous? Because you're not getting into the room without that, to see the face of Jesus. I mean, it's all a perfect place. Why? To enjoy Jesus, he's the light of the glory of, of God. He in himself is the high point. And he, through the gospel, is turning on the light so that you can see it and you can have it. And this is the high point of God's love. What's the best thing he can possibly give you? Give me a long, healthy life, let me die in my sleep at 99. You're cheating yourself. You're cheating yourself. Well, forgiveness, I don't have to go to hell. That's nice. It is very nice. You're still cheating yourself. What's the best thing he can give you? Jesus. And uh, this is kind of our problem with him is uh, he loves us too much. Do you, ever, do you ever want God to love you a little less? Because he messes with you to make you holy? 
so you can be like Jesus. And we're like, is there a casual Christianity version somewhere in here where I can do general nice person, easy life? Can, is that a third option? No. I'm making you like Jesus because I'm getting you to Jesus. That's what we're doing. And that's God's love. If you see that, do you realize God's turned on the light for you? How kind of him to do that. He's turned on the light. If, if just a glimmer of your heart goes, oh, Jesus, I want, I want to be there. I want to see. That's good. That means he's loved you and he's worked on you. And maybe there's some people in this room where you're like, boy, I was kind of just relying on forgiveness and that's all it was to me. Maybe God wants to wake you up to he's doing way more than that. Way more than that. And our hearts should just be on fire for the person of Jesus. Anyway, do you see the wonder of what God is doing? He is awakening human hearts, turning on human hearts to the glory of Jesus. What are the big deals going on in our world right now? Oh, we got a new president, there's controversies, immigration, there's Russia, there's, uh, what else going on? Oh, there's a Super Bowl tonight. There's all this other stuff. There's stuff going on in your life, so big and so huge and so many huge things to be worried about. Listen, it's all nothing in comparison to this. This is the story. God is bringing people to Jesus. Our nation is important, politics are important, all this other stuff's important. Isaiah 40, nations are a drop in the bucket compared to the glory of God. Nations come and go and rise and fall and they're footnotes on the story of history. God is bringing people to Jesus and he's king of kings and lord of lords and he shall reign forever. That's what we have. That's what he's done for us. Now how does this give us courage? How does this give us courage? Look at the beginning of chapter four, verse one. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Is Paul sometimes tempted to lose heart? You don't write this unless you're sometimes tempted to lose heart. Yes, he told us in chapter one, we despaired of life itself. So let's go ahead and burn the urban legend again. It's fun to set it on fire. You ever heard it said that God will never give you more than you can handle? Ha ha, lies. Just set it on fire. The apostle said, God gave us more than we could handle. We despaired of life itself. We were burdened beyond what we could ever imagine. The biblical truth is that God will never give you more than he can handle in your life. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. What's the ministry he has? Here's the amazing thing. What does God use to turn the light on in hearts so that they can see Jesus? Paul's words. Paul's words. Faith comes through hearing. Verse five, Paul's gonna say, what we, what? Look at verse five real quick. For what we proclaim. God turns the light on in human hearts to see the glory of Jesus using Paul's words. Doesn't it seem like the biggest thing is happening through the weakest and smallest thing? Now remember, Paul is dead as far as this life goes, okay? Whose words does God use now to turn on the light of the glory of Jesus? Our words. Paul's words spoken by us. Words. Since I have this ministry, Paul says, God is turning on the light of the glory of his son in human hearts, and he's using our words. I don't lose heart. That gives me courage to what? Speak. Courage to speak. I want to show you a couple ways we get courage. Therefore, since we have courage in the mercy of God, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. We have courage. Number one, 
We gain courage from the joy of God's mercy. Um, how many of you wish your football team was in the Super Bowl this afternoon? Couple, okay, yeah, you wish. Some of you, that's gonna be a miracle beyond belief, like the LA Rams. Let's just go ahead and give that one a chuckle. <laughs> Sorry, that's just cruel, isn't it? Is he making fun of my football team in a sermon? Yeah. That's not inspired by God, though. That's me and my flesh, <laughs> my sinful pride. <laughs> the only reason I brought this up is because if your team was in the Super Bowl, what would you be talking about with other people who like your team? You'd be talking about your team. And if your team's not in the Super Bowl, what do you hope you get to do today? Some of you, anyway. You hope you get a good game, and then you're gonna, what are you going to do about this great game? I mean, some of us are going to jump up and down, we're going to yell, we're going to pump our fists, we're going to send messages. What are you doing? Uh, you're praising something that gives you joy. And if you look at the majority of your communication with your friends and the people you know, guess what you're always trying to do? You're trying to praise something that gives you joy. How many of you, you're a little more long in the tooth, you like to talk about your kids and your grandkids? So it gives you joy. You want to show another picture because they're beautiful, and they are. Praise it. Praise it. You got a hobby you like. You like to meet with other people with the same hobby. Isn't this cool? It's cool. Right? You're praising something that gives you joy. Okay, if you're a Christian, what is the eternal, white-hot, ridiculous joy of your heart? Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Jesus, it's Jesus. You remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.24? Look at this phrase. What is his whole view on how he relates with other people? I work with you for your, what? Joy, and you could easily add a parenthesis, in Christ. We showed that a couple weeks ago. I work with you for your joy in Christ. That's what I do. I have so much joy in Christ. I want you to see what I see so that you can have Joy in Christ. If you have courage to talk to anyone in the world about something in this world that gives you joy, because you love it so much, I, I, wish, I wish some of us were as passionate about the gospel as we were about talking about politics. We're, we're passionate about politics. It gives us joy, one view of looking at how things work. I'm not against that. I'm fine with that. I have some too. I just want to know, what's your biggest one? What's your biggest joy? What's your greatest joy? What do you really want people to see? I want them to see Jesus first. I want them to see Jesus. I want them to take joy in Jesus. If you take joy in something, what will that give you courage to do? You'll talk about it. You will talk about it because you love it. Courage from joy, that's part of what Paul has. So he has courage from the joy of God's mercy the joy in Jesus that he has. He also has courage from the power of God's mercy. The power of God's mercy. How do you view, and the church we're here is evangelism, right? What do we mean by evangelism? You're sharing the gospel with somebody else. How do you view it? Is it like this? I'm doing the work, and God is the tool. This is on me, and God, could you help a little? Is that how you view it? That's how I feel like it is sometimes. How should I view it? God is working, and I'm the tool. Hey, Matt, I'm going to use you a little bit. What's your major view? Who's, who's the, who has the major responsibility on turning someone to Christ? It's God. And look what Paul says in verse 2. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So, in one sense, for sure, he's responding to false teachers, and we hear about that more in chapter 11. That's a big part of what this book is. He has to respond to false teachers, and so he's kind of given a, some people do this, <laughs> but he's also saying, I'm not going to do it. Um... Have you ever felt pressure to doctor God's word a little bit when you're talking? 
with people about the gospel. Most of us probably aren't going to like add in something totally new. We'll probably just leave out some of the stuff that's hard. You ever felt that pressure before? Let's talk about the love of God. That's good. What part do you get a little timid? There is this thing on if you don't trust in him, you're under God's wrath. Is that part of the story? Are you tempted to cut it out? Why? <laughs> it's everything we went through in the beginning. Awkward, uncomfortable, rejection. <laughs> ah! I refuse, it's not a good sales pitch. I, we refuse to renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Paul has a freedom here that he doesn't have to doctor the message, to, to twist it, to make it easier, to make it different. He says, I'm not in this for the money. I have the glory of Jesus. I'm not in this for the power. I have Jesus as my savior. I'm not gonna lie to you. I fear Jesus. I'm not gonna manipulate you. I'm not gonna doctor this. I'm not gonna mess with it. I'm not gonna make it PC. I'm gonna give you an open statement of the truth. Here's what it is. I'm gonna give you an open statement. And he's free from having to doctor it because he knows what turns the light on. How do I get you to like the gospel? How do I get you to come to church? Well, what if I changed this and I changed that and I manipulated this and I manipulated that? And I, I remember going to a, a youth conference once. I used to do youth work and we went to this youth conference and this guy was trying to preach the gospel to these high schoolers. Okay, he's doing a good job, fine. And we get to the end and he, instead of landing the plane, man, he circles the plane around the airport about 12 times. Have you heard this before in a speaker? And this is what starts to happen. The music starts getting really like, I'm like tearing up and I don't even know why. <sighs> What are we crying about? I don't know. <laughs> and then he's like, you know, once there was a car of teenagers who on the way home from a conference, they were in a wreck and that was the end. And I was like, are you really pulling this? What is that called, folks? It's called manipulation. And you know why he did that? It's because he thinks he has to turn the light on. He thinks he has to turn the light on. So he's, in my, in my, I think he's doctoring it. He's messing, he's messing with it. Because he thought he had to turn the light on. When you know, who, wait, who turns the light on in the hearts? God does. Listen, are we gonna persuade? Yeah, look at 2 Corinthians 5.11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, what do we do? We persuade. So I'm going to give you the truth as best I can. And I want to explain it as best I can. I want to answer questions as much as I can. I want to show you how this is compelling. But it's all with absolute honesty and sincerity. I don't want to hide anything from you. I have everything we believe as a Christian. I will tell you exactly how I see that. Every time, every place, every way. I got nothing to hide. I'm going to give it to your conscience. And then who's it on as far as you're concerned? It's on you. It's on you what you do with it. You, I'm responsible to say it honestly and completely without fooling with it for my own agenda, and then you're responsible to do with it according to your conscience, and who has the power and the strength to turn the light on? God does. It frees you. Remember that fear we have of being exposed? That's one reason we don't evangelize sometimes. We have a fear of being exposed. Go ahead and say it with me. I don't know everything. Go ahead, it's helpful. I don't know everything. Yeah, see? You don't have to. And, and you don't have to turn the light on either. You can't turn the light on. It's God who's doing the work. He turns the light on. So what do you do? Just give an open statement of the truth. If you feel like you're a failure because you tried to share the gospel with somebody and they didn't see it or they didn't like it, do you know what company you're in? Jesus ever preach a sermon where everybody hated it? Jesus, folks, Jesus preached a sermon where everybody hated it. Paul, all the time, okay? 
It's par for the course. We don't know everything. We're weak and we're frail. In fact, that's coming soon in 2 Corinthians, how weak and frail Paul feels. Guess what God uses to turn the light on? Honest proclamation from weak and frail people who don't know everything and don't have it all together. He will use you. Won't that give you courage? Do you know God even wants to use you? Say it with me. God wants to use me. God wants to use me. You have a reach with people that I will never have a reach with. You have a reach with people you will never have a reach with. You have a unique place and a unique connection with people no one else has, and God wants to use you to turn the light on. You don't turn the light on, you tell the truth. Look at this parable from Mark 4. I love this. Mark 4 is talking about somebody who spreads the gospel. Mark 4, 26, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. What's he do, verse 27? He sleeps. <laughs> this is my favorite verse for Sunday night. Um, he spreads the gospel, and then he, he sleeps. Then he rises and does it again, night and day. What happens? The seed sprouts and grows. What is this guy like? I don't know how this works. I'm just throwing the seed. Trying to water it. Can, can the farmer make the plants grow? If you're sailing a ship, can you make the wind blow? No. Can you put up your sails? Yeah. Can you throw the seed and fertilize it and pull the weeds out? Yeah. But you can't make it grow. You can put up your sails. You can't make the wind blow. You can share the gospel. You can't turn on the light. But somebody else can. And a lot of times, he does. Plant the seed give an open statement of the truth, and then go to sleep. Because you have courage. You're free. You're free because God's the one who's working. So that's courage from the power of God's mercy. We have courage from the joy we get in God's mercy. We share what we love. We have courage from the power of God's mercy, Paul says, because it's God who's working. And the last one, we have courage from the love in God's mercy. If you see God giving you Jesus Christ, I mean, what love of Jesus Christ that he, being the glorious creator, would come and take on flesh and die for me so that I could be with him forever? What love is that? It's just overwhelming love. And you just, it's, it's so undeserved and it's so, um, he gives 100% of his glorious self to a sinner like me and it's overwhelming, it's love. Look at back at verse three, 2 Corinthians four, verse three. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are what? Perishing. I don't like this part. This is an open statement of the truth. God is holy. He loves what is good. How does he feel about what is evil? He hates what is evil. He should. He's the judge. Don't you want justice at the end of time? I need justice. The problem with justice at the end of time when Jesus comes back is that I've been evil. God's holy. Without Jesus, we're in trouble. We have not loved God. We have not loved our neighbor. We've called God a liar. Without Jesus, we are what? Perishing. And it's a present participle. It's not will perish. It's on the road right now. We are driving at a high speed intentionally towards perishing. Do you love people who don't know Jesus? Do you believe that they're perishing? If they were hurt in other ways and they needed your help, wouldn't you go? Sometimes it's just love that gives us courage. I love this person. I'm going to try again. I love them. Look at verse five. We'll finish here. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves as what? Your servants, and, and literally it's like slaves. For Jesus' sake, Paul says, 
for Jesus' sake, because I see him and I love him and I'm loved by him, I'm going to go out and I'm going to be your slave, a slave to the world, basically. They own me in a way, Paul says. How, how does the world own Paul? How would you say that? How is he their slave? He's going to do whatever he can to get them Jesus. Paul is saying, if you're a Christian, you owe something to the world that hates you. You owe them something. What do you owe them? Jesus, the gospel. Now let's go and raise some uh, concerns. But they don't deserve it. Okay, help me out with that one. You don't deserve it. But it's gonna, it's gonna be painful. All right, help me out with that one. It was kind of painful for Jesus, kind of, sort of. What else? It's gonna be hard and take time. Yeah, okay. Love. Right? So here's how it works, I think, for Paul. In his great mercy, God is revealing the glory of Jesus to human hearts. Didn't God do that for Paul? Remember that story in the road to Damascus? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. Oh, and it changes everything. God reveals the glory of Jesus to human hearts, and what's the tool that he uses? Shockingly, surprisingly, our words. Our words. And so because we have the joy in his mercy and the power in his mercy that he saves, the love that we find in his mercy, what does that give us? Courage. Courage to speak. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for opening our eyes. Lord, if there's somebody here who hasn't had their eyes open in that way, I pray you would turn the light on. They would see the beauty of your son, desire him above all. Lord, I pray for each one of us as we look to you, Jesus, so glorious and wonderful, the best thing there is, Lord, that your love for us, your mercy for us, that would give us courage, Lord, to identify as yours, that the joy we have in you would give us courage to share our joy, that the mercy, the power of your mercy, knowing that you're the one who turns the light on, that would give us courage to share, and that just the love you have for us, that that would translate into our love for others, and we would speak, and Lord, remove the veil as we do so. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.